Some years ago, there was a movie that was, it was popular. It, it, it ages me a little bit, the fact that I'm even mentioning it. But it's, a, it's called the movie Heaven Can Wait. And in the movie, Warren Beatty, he plays a football quarterback who becomes the CEO of a large, rich, powerful, but struggling corporation. And at the meeting, he asks the members of the board, is our company having a winning season? In other words, are we on track to success or failure? Are we moving towards the championship or toward the seller? And I believe that every person should ask that question of themselves. Am I having a winning season in my life? And every ministry should ask this question of itself. And every church should ask the question of itself. And we need to constantly examine and evaluate ourselves in light of how are we doing? Are we moving forward? Are we progressing? Are we accomplishing what we set out to accomplish? Are we doing the work that God has called us to do? And we need to ask these questions of ourselves. But I want to make it clear, the church, and that is the universal church, not just this church, the universal church is beyond any doubt having a winning season. Even with the setbacks of COVID that COVID had brought our way, and even with the cultural challenges that we face, and even with the accusations that people bring against the church, we are having a winning season. I'm going to make my case for that this morning. Now, we may not win every game, but we will win far more than we lose, and ultimately, the victory is ours. It's guaranteed. The end's already been written. The church body has been created by God to bring him glory and demonstrate his wisdom. And God doesn't fail. COVID and other factors cannot undo that reality even with the setbacks it may present us. Years ago, Bill Gaither, some of you older people remember Bill Gaither. My wife and I when we were in San Diego as executive pastor of a church there and um, we took a bus of people from San Diego up to the pond in Anaheim, which is about an hour drive, to go see the Gaithers. And it was packed with people. Just, I mean, it's, a, it's where the Mighty Ducks play hockey. It was packed and all gray hair. And one guy, a younger guy went with us, and everybody else walked away. Ooh, ah, this was wonderful and great. The one guy said, ah, it was so-so. He didn't care much for it. I guess my point there being... Uh, Bill Gaither wrote a song. So for me, one of the older people, remember it. it there's a part where they don't sing, but he's reading something that includes a, a recitation about the church. It says this, and I love it. God has always had a people. Many a foolish conqueror has made the mistake of thinking that because he had driven the church of Jesus Christ out of sight, that he had killed its voice and snuffed out its light. God has always had a people. The powerful current is a rushing river is not diminished because it is forced to flow underground. The purest water is a stream that bursts crystal clear into the sunlight after it's fought its way through solid rock. God has always had a people. There have been charlatans who, like Simon, the magician in the book of Acts, sought to barter on the open market that power which cannot be bought or sold, but God always had a people. Men who could not be bought, women who were beyond purchase, God has always had a people. There have been different times of affluence and prosperity when the church's message has been nearly diluted into oblivion by those who sought to make it socially attractive and neatly organized and financially profitable. It has been gold-plated, draped in purple, 
and encrusted with jewels, it has been misrepresented, ridiculed, lauded, and scorned. These followers of Jesus Christ have been, according to the whim of the times, elevated as sacred leaders and martyrs and martyrdous heretics, and yet through it all, there marches on that powerful army of the meek, God-chosen people who cannot be bought, flattered, murdered, or stilled. On through the ages, they march. The church, God's church triumphant, is alive and well. I love that and how true it is. And it's true even in Canada and even in the United States, the church is quickly losing ground, becoming like that of Europe. It's becoming more obscure than it once was, but it's still going to win. We see it flourishing in Africa and South America, South Korea, and yes, even in spite of the severe persecution they're facing, the church is still thriving in China and other parts of the world. The Anglican church is in a rift between Africa and the West and is thriving in Africa where it's dying in the West. And so while the church in the U.S. and Canada is in trouble, the church universal is still flourishing. Do you believe that? Jesus does. He's not coming back for a church that is lazy, wicked, backslidden, weak, and effective, and all the other things that critics in the church say about the church. Jesus is coming back for a church that is alive, that is pure, and that is holy, and spotless, and blameless, and full of his glory. If the North American church is to regain its momentum as a force for God in the world, we must reconsider what will get us there. The church exists, and it is our job to get on board. Today, I'm going to talk about three key words that reveal three areas in which we need to strive for excellence in order to be the church that God has called us to be. So we're going to respond to this question. What do we need to strive for for the church to be the church that God has called us to be? And the first response is going to be this. We need to seek unity. Do you know how the manifold wisdom of God is revealed in the church? Like the, the way this verse is written in the Living King James. We see in Ephesians 3.10. His intent was that now, through the church... The manifold wisdom of God should be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms according to his eternal purpose that he accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord. In him and through faith we may approach God with freedom and confidence. I ask you therefore not to be discouraged because of my sufferings for you which are your glory. So in this verse we learn we need to seek unity. He talks here of the manifold wisdom of God is to be revealed in the church. Know how that's to be done? I like the way this verse says it's written in the New Living Translation. God's purpose was to show his wisdom in all its rich variety to all the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms. They will see this when Jews and Gentiles are joined together in the church. Because that was the theme he was just talking about. The, the, the unity between the Jews and the Gentiles. That, that great wall of division that separated them has now been, has been removed so they can be reconciled together. And I want to note several things about that. Number one, first of all, we reveal God's wisdom when Christians live together in ethnic harmony. We reveal God's wisdom when we look at another person and do not see the color of their skin or ethnic background. Instead, we, we see Christ in them. We reveal God's wisdom when we demonstrate that every believer of every race and ethnic background is equal in the eyes of God and in the eyes of his people. This wisdom, it says, is revealed in heavenly places but to whom is this wisdom revealed? Notice what it says, that it is intended to reveal God's wisdom, but to whom? Paul says in verse 10 who those people are. 
to the rulers and the authorities of the heavenly places. Rulers and authorities refer to the spirit beings who make up two large groups, angels and demons. Paul will make reference to them again later on several occasions. That's the good guys and the bad guys. God's wisdom is revealed through the church for the benefit of the rulers and the authorities in the heavenly places. The angels and the demons. Do you notice who is conspicuously absent from this list? Who he's not revealing it to? CNN. MTV. The Motion Picture Academy. These groups don't get what the church is about. When they look at us, they don't see the wisdom of God revealed. They don't see the good that we do. And neither do they understand the distinction between a person who is committed follower of Jesus Christ and a person who is a Christian in name only. They can't make the distinction. And so the church will never get the credit it deserves from the media because they, they'll never completely understand us. But the principalities and powers, the supernatural good guys and bad guys... They do understand what's going on. They do understand the difference between one who is a true believer and one who isn't. And when they see the church being the church, they see God's wisdom at work. It's like this. The demons watch from a distance as followers of Jesus Christ reach out to one another in love. And they see rich Christians choosing instead of spending their wealth on themselves to minister to the poor. Why? Only because it pleases the God that they serve. That's why they do it. They see Christians of different races and different nationalities putting aside their perceived differences and coming together to serve one another in, in, in God. Why? Only because it pleases God. They see believers risking their lives to go into foreign lands to tell others about Jesus. And they see believers risking their reputations to reach out to those who hurt in their community. They see believers putting aside their careers and goals and plans to fulfill God's call to their lives. Why? Only because it pleases God. The demons could say, isn't it amazing? Those on our side serve only when there's something in it for them. Money, power, glory, fame, whatever it may be. But God's people serve him simply because they love him. God's people serve him even when there's suffering involved. How does he do it? How does he get them to do it that way? That's the wisdom of God. He's using us to show all of heaven that love has more power than hate and that grace has more power than sin. And Paul says that wisdom has been revealed in the church because God's plan has been fulfilled already in Jesus Christ. And we participate in that plan by living together in unity and by loving one another. And we're reminded again of what Jesus said in John 13, and I've referred it to it several times in, in this series. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another even as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this will all men know that you are my disciples if you have love one for another. If we ever do get... CNN's attention in a way that reveals the true glory of the church. It won't be our politics. It won't be our boycotts. It won't be our picket lines. It will be through our love for one another. The church of Jesus Christ is alive and well, even in Canada, even in North America. And do you want to get on board with that? Church, let's love one another. There's a second response to our question. What do we need to strive for, for the church to be the church of causes to be? And that is, we need 
to approach God with assurance. Paul refers to this in Ephesians chapter 3, 11 and 12. He says, His eternal purpose, which he carried out in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and confidence, access through faith in Christ. The slight variations in translations, but the essence is still the same. First of all, we learn that we approach God with boldness and confidence. Notice these two words. They describe how we approach God. But many Christians struggle in this area. Sometimes I struggle in this area. In a previous message in series, I mentioned my friend's dog, Quincy. John got him from an animal shelter, and he never quite warmed up to John as the head of the household. He had obviously been abused in his past, and so when John adopted him or bought him and got him, got him he was not quite normal initially. And often when they were in the living room, reading or watching TV, Quincy would come tiptoeing in, see what's going on. And when Quincy saw John, he would immediately turn around and leave. John had saved this dog's life. He had fed him. He gave him a home to live and paid his vet bills. And he's still afraid to be in the same room with John. Compare that to their cat, Sassy. John would spread out the newspaper on the dining room table and get up to pour some coffee. And when he came back, Sassy had climbed on the table and he was sitting on the newspaper that he was just about to read. And he gives John this look that says, I'll sit here if I want, mister. You see the difference? We swing between two extremes in the way that we approach God. We cower in fear like Quincy with an eye that says, I'm so unworthy, you probably don't want me here. And it's like, God doesn't want me in his presence. Look at the mess that I am. Or like Sasso, he walks into the presence of God with a shopping list and an attitude that says, God, you're so lucky to have me in your team. Look at me. Both are wrong. And of course, both stem from the same sin, the sin of attempting to approach God based on our worthiness. When the reality is, none of us is worthy. There's only one who is worthy, and that's Jesus Christ. We need to learn that in comparison to God's holiness, there's only a marginal difference between our worst behavior and our best behavior. As Isaiah 64, 6 tells us, all of us have become like one who is unclean. And all of our righteousness are filthy rags. In other words, even the best things that we do compared to the holiness of God, the good things that we do compared to the holiness of God, they're nothing. They're inconsequential. At our very best, we're not worthy to be in his presence. We don't deserve his mercy, and we don't deserve his grace. And Paul talks about boldness and confidence, but don't mistake boldness for presumption. And don't mistake confidence for arrogance. We approach God only through Jesus, as he says in John 14, 6, no one comes to the Father but through me. It is through Jesus Christ alone and his death, burial, and resurrection and us giving our sin and our guilt over to him and letting it die on the cross with him. That's the only thing that makes us worthy, to come boldly to his presence. In Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, as we read some weeks ago, we heard God say this, for by grace... You have been saved through faith, and not, not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, so that no one may boast. Or how about Ephesians 3.12? We have boldness and confident access through him in faith. You see, through faith in him, the faith that comes as a gift from God. Sometimes I hear people say, I have too many doubts. I don't have a bold faith. No one does. No one does. 
Faith is a gift. In fact, I want to make a crucial distinction about the Greek text here. We read it as faith in him, but the original text literally means faith of him. That is how the King James Version translates this verse. The Greek word that is translated faith can also be translated faithfulness. So this verse can be translated, we have boldness and access and confidence through his faithfulness. We can also make this distinction in Galatians. Where Paul writes in Galatians 2.20, says, I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live, yet not I, but Christ lives me in the life which I now live in the flesh. I live by the faithfulness of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. You see, we approach God boldly because it's not about us and our abilities and our competency. It's about God's love and his faithfulness. It's not about my great faith. It's about his great faithfulness. You can approach God with freedom and confidence, not because of what you have done, but because of what he has done. That's what the book of Hebrews says in Hebrews chapter 4, 16. Let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and may find grace to help us in time of need. You see, the church cannot effectively be the church until we settle this issue in our hearts and our minds. We must approach him with boldness and confidence. There's no other way to approach him. And we must remember that our boldness and confidence is a result of Christ's faithfulness, not our merits and works. In fact, as your homework assignment this week, I would like to challenge you to try this. Approach with boldness and confidence, not with presumption or arrogance. Come boldly before God's throne of grace in prayer. Come with boldness and confidence, saying, God, I know you welcome me in your presence today and that you hear me when I pray because of what Jesus Christ has done for me on the cross. So I may bring my needs and hurts and my hopes and my dreams before you. Let's be a church that has assurance, not in ourselves, but in the goodness of God. There's a third response to our question, what do we need to strive for the, for the church to be the church God has called it to be? And that is, we need to live in hope. Paul writes this in verse 13. Therefore I ask you not to lose heart at my tribulation on your behalf, for they are for your glory. This is interesting. Because Paul is not saying, don't get discouraged by my suffering. He does not say, don't get discouraged by your suffering, but don't get discouraged by my suffering. Sometimes it's easier to bear the burden of yourself than to have someone bear it for you. And that's what's happening in this situation. Paul sat in a Roman prison while the members of the church of Ephesus lived in freedom. And Paul told them, it's worth it. Today, millions of Christians throughout the world, we know of those in China especially, our brothers and sisters live every day of their lives in jeopardy. Christianity is the most persecuted religion throughout the world. And we have reason to believe it is coming to North America soon as well, if we're not already seeing it. Some live in fear of their government, and some live in fear of Islamic or Hindu militants. But it does not seem fair that their lives are so perilous, and our lives are so in comparison easy, at least for now. When we consider the struggle that these fellow believers must endure, must resolve to do three things. So what are these three things? What should we do to, for fellow believers? Number one, we need to pray for them. 
Every day we must pray for the suffering church that God will give them the strength to overcome hardship. And it's found in Muslim countries. It's found in China. And they're all throughout the world. We're seeing it. We need to support them. That is why we approach ministries such as missions and even ministries such as Voice of the Martyrs. We need to work for that. Many pastors cannot do their jobs today. They cannot visit those who need to be visited. They cannot pray for those who need prayer, cannot minister to those who need ministry. But I can, and so I must. And every time I find myself obligated to do some type of ministry, making visits I don't have time to make, speaking or preparing sermons, my schedule is already too packed, traveling when I would rather be home, I remember my brothers and sisters who would give anything for the ministry opportunities I have every day of my life. I do this because I have hope that their sacrifice is not in vain. We're privileged here. And even though the day is coming when the church in North America will be persecuted as well, we need to take advantage of the freedoms we continue to have right now. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 15, 28, Therefore, my dear brothers, stand firm. Let nothing move you. Always give yourself to the work of the Lord because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. And we must have hope that even though we lose some battles along the way, and even though some of our members suffer unfairly, our work and theirs is never in vain because God will accomplish his purpose in his church. And for the church to be the church, we must have the right attitude towards suffering, an attitude of hope. God has a plan for human history. He is not, as the deist suggested, a clockmaker God, the kind of God who simply created the universe, who wound it all up, and like a clockmaker, then stepped back to let it run without any further involvement. That's not the God of the Bible. He created the world with a specific purpose in mind. He has a plan for the ages, and his plan is being implemented. And the core of his plan, the turning point of history, is the life and the death and the resurrection of Christ Jesus. In Christ, God's eternal plan was carried out. Carried out. Past tense. As in done. Completed. Finished. Our job is to participate in the unfolding of this plan, to be the church. This involves living in unity, approaching him with insurance, and giving and serving him with hope. This is the church triumphant. Let it be alive and well in this place here today. Some things to take away from this. Number one, for the church in North America to regain its momentum, we must be united. It seems we have become masters of finding reasons to look with disdain on other believers who do not think exactly like us. Number two, to be the church God wants us to be, we must approach God with confidence. We cannot be effective in our witness if we are not confident of who we are in Christ. And we need to take full advantage of that privilege to go before the very throne of the almighty creator and have a direct fellowship with him and to do it confidently and boldly. For the church to have an impact, we must all be serving God with hope. The lockdowns due to COVID have hit the church hard and already been reeling from cultural attacks that were set to undermine it. We could get defeated and discouraged and go, oh, look at what's going on. Our church is doing well in comparison to many churches throughout the world right now because of the freedoms that we have and other privileges. But we have to all remember that God is in control and he's still at work in the church. He's still at work. And we're motivated by this hope. Some of you remember the names Jerry Falwell 
and Larry Flint on the episode that took place many, many years ago now. And they provide strong reactions from some older people in our culture. Younger people may not remember even either of them. But let me tell you the following story shared by Falwell's son, Jonathan, which describes a moving conversation about the Baptist pastor and the publisher of the pornographic magazine, Hustler. Years ago, Jonathan traveled with his dad to Florida where the senior Falwell was debating Larry Flint. Jonathan recalls this. I'm reading his account. Mr. Flint asked my dad if he could give him a ride back to Lynchburg in my dad's private jet. And dad said yes. So we traveled to the airport and boarded a beautiful black and gold Gulfstream 3. And when we flew to Virginia, I sat across from my dad and Mr. Flint as they had a long conversation about sports, food, politics, and other ordinary topics. I was amazed and bewildered because they kept talking like old friends. And after we dropped off Mr. Flint in Lynchburg, I asked Dad, how come you could sit on that airplane and carry on a conversation with Larry Flint as if you guys were lifelong buddies? Dad, he's the exact opposite of everything you believe in. He does all the things you preach against, and yet you are treating him like a member of your own church. Dad's response changed my whole outlook on ministry. Jonathan, he said, there's going to be a day when Larry is hurting and lonely, and he'll be looking for help and guidance. He's going to pick up the phone and call someone who can help him. I want to earn the right to be that phone call. It's that kind of attitude that the church needs, that we are called to be God, to, to show the manifold wisdom of God throughout the world, and hopefully that even the world will see it by how we love, other, love ourselves and we're able to love others.